2018, Prince Harry and Meghan, then the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, visited Australia. I don't know if you remember it or not. Mostly it was to attend the Invictus Games that were in Sydney. Randomly, they also ended up at Dubbo. I'm not quite sure what, what part Dubbo played, uh, but it's a wonderful place, Dubbo, too. But they were in Dubbo. Uh, the Invictus Games, a sporting event for men and women injured in the armed forces. Now, on its own, the Invictus Games would have taken years to organise, would have involved hundreds of people. But then Prince Harry and Meghan decide they're going to come as well. Uh, add on to that all the extra details for when royalty comes to visit, the extra security, the logistical support, the accommodation, the transport, the arrangements, the invitations, the list goes on and on. And all of those jobs involved experts who came in to help. There were experts at logistics and catering and cleaning and crowd control and event management and transport. When you're ready, when you're meeting royalty, it's important to have someone to help you to get ready. When you're meeting royalty, it's important to have someone to help you to get ready. And here in Mark chapter 1, this is exactly what's happening. Israel is getting ready to meet royalty. You see right there in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The truth is Israel's been getting ready for royalty for hundreds of years, especially since the time of Isaiah. Five centuries before, Isaiah had delivered the good news, the gospel, that God was coming to set them free. God was coming to restore his kingdom. Here's the good news that God gave Isaiah to announce. You can find it in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. And Isaiah says, You who bring, or God says to Isaiah, You who bring good tidings to Zion. Now that's the word for gospel. You who bring a gospel to Zion. Go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem. Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. That's the gospel message that Isaiah was bringing and Israel had been waiting for God to arrive. God is going to come and he's going to bring his kingdom and he's going to use his servant, his Messiah or his Christ to do it. God's Christ will come and bring God's kingdom. That's what the gospel announcement is. Messiah or anointed one or Christ uh, they're all the same thing. It's a title for God's chosen king who brings his kingdom. Uh, and Isaiah also gives us a, a little hint to the servant's voice, what the servant would do when he arrived. Uh, and he would declare his own good news. So in Isaiah 61, this is, this is what the servant would say. Uh, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That's the gospel word. Uh, to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the freedom, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners. Now that's the king that Israel is waiting to meet. But because they've been waiting for so long, five centuries, they need someone to help them. They've got complacent. Uh, it's important to prepare properly when royalty's coming to visit. And so Mark starts by telling us about getting people ready. 
verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. It's written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way, get it ready, for the Lord makes straight paths for him. And those words from Isaiah, they're about to be fulfilled. God sends John the Baptist to prepare the way, to get things ready, to smooth the rough places and to make the road ready for, tra- for travel. Like all of that organisation for Harry and Meghan's visit. But how do you do that? How do you get ready for Jesus, God's chosen king? Do you organise crowd control and transport? Do you organise functions? Do you teach people manners? Do you prepare fireworks? Well, look at what John's message is all about. Look at how he got people ready for the king. Verse 4. And so John came, baptising in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The way to get ready for the king of the universe is to repent. To repent is to recognise that you have turned away from God. You've lived your life resisting and rejecting his King Jesus. And you need to do a U-turn. And we've all done that. For all of us, our natural inclination is to do things our way, not Jesus' way. Our natural inclination is to live independently from the God who made us and from his Son, We all prefer to run our own lives than recognise Jesus' right to rule. But John's message here is that's got to stop. You need to recognise that Jesus has the right to rule over you as king. You need to bow the knee before him. That's what it means to get ready for royalty. If you're not doing that, then John's message to the people of Israel, all that those 2,000 years ago, then that's a message for you. Because you need to get ready for Jesus by repenting. So what about John's hearers? How ready were they? They'd had hundreds of years to get ready. They'd been waiting for the Messiah for generations. You would think they would be keen. And they were. Look at verse 5. John is running his royalty preparation courses out in the desert and the people are flocking the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem now I think that's probably hyperbolic well yes it is hyperbolic it wasn't everybody but there were people everywhere and they were coming out into the desert around the Jordan River and they were confessing their sins and they were being baptised by John Now, it would be easy for John to get carried away by all the excitement, to to let the attention go to his head. But it's important for the support act to remember that the crowd haven't come to see him. (laughs) They might look out and see a full stadium, but they're not there to see the support act. They've come to see the main attraction, the headline act. And John realises that. He realises his job is just to prepare people for the main event to warm up the crowd, because someone far more important is coming. That's what he says in verse 7. Have a look at it with me. This was his message. This was John's message. After me will come one more powerful than I, 
the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he'll baptise you with the Holy Spirit. John was the entree. The main course was still to come. John splashed some water around, but Jesus pours out God's Holy Spirit. And John says, I'm not worthy to untie his shoelaces. Uh, I'm not worthy to tie his shoelaces. And so here we are, the stage is set, the backup act is finished, the house lights are dimmed, the curtain is drawn back, the audience is hushed. Who's this one who's greater than John? And at this point, Mark introduces the star of the show. The one that people have been waiting for, royalty, arrives. I wonder if people were expecting someone special, someone grand, a royal figure on a, on a chariot, a mighty leader, doing miracles like Moses. And perhaps they'd be looking around for him as John prepared the way. Were they checking out likely people? I wonder if it's him or him. But my guess is that Jesus was walking among them and they didn't even notice. Because just like lots of others, he lined up to be baptised by John in the river. Did you see there in verse 9? At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Can you imagine a king doing something that humble, just like you or me? I was at the airport once. A huge black limousine pulled up. A chauffeur got out and walked uh, officiously into the terminal. People were coming out through the customs gate and he held up a sign that said, Bill Thompson, IBM. And I wondered which one was Bill Thompson uh, from IBM. What sort of person has a limo like that and a chauffeur? Was it, was it that tall, distinguished-looking man in the dark suit? Or, or maybe the older man with grey hair carrying the big briefcase? Or maybe the, the sharp, young executive in the dark blue pinstripe? Well, I could hardly believe my eyes when it was this short, unassuming, balding guy wearing a Larry Hawaiian shirt, baggy shorts and shoes walked up to the chauffeur and introduced himself. He looked about as much like a high-powered business executive as I do. I think that's what it must have been like for the crowd at the river. What sort of a king waits his turn in line to be baptised in a muddy river? But that's what Jesus does. And it's only as he comes up from the water that we see his true credentials. If you like, his secret identity is revealed, his true occupation. Look there in verse 10 and 11. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Heaven is split apart and God's voice booms out, declaring Jesus as his son, a son he loves, a son he's pleased with. This is the king Israel's been waiting for, the one John's been getting people ready for. And yet there are questions about this kingship already, aren't there? What sort of a king queues up to be baptised like the rest? The mystery continues. Uh, rather than a crowd 
forming a procession to escort him up to Jerusalem and to storm the, the, uh, the palace. Rather than finding him a golden chariot and horses and soldiers, Jesus just heads off into the desert by himself. Just like Israel, who'd been tested in the desert. This king does what they did. He's gone down into the Jordan River, just like Israel did, and come through the other side. And he's gone out into the the desert, just like Israel did. And we read in verse 12, At once the Spirit led him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. It's a strange sort of kingship. A king who follows the path of his people into the wilderness and through the Jordan, and yet is faithful while they were faithless. He's God's special loved son, and yet he stands in line behind and in front of sinful people and goes out of his way to be tested, like all of us. In some strange way, that will be explained as we keep reading, this king of the universe is standing in the place of sinners, standing with sinners and standing in the place of sinners. We don't have all the pieces yet, but we begin to ask the question that we're going to ask week after week. What sort of a king is Jesus? What sort of a king is Jesus? So we move on to Jesus himself. We've heard from John about Jesus. We've heard from God about Jesus. Now we hear from Jesus himself. Verse 14, he comes proclaiming good news. It's not surprising, is it? He's proclaiming gospel from God, just as Isaiah did before him. And his message is that something exciting is about to happen. Something exciting is about to happen. The time is nearly here. The coronation is just around the corner. The time Israel's been waiting for. The time when God will show his rule in the world. Verse 15, Jesus' first recorded words. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is it's near. It's, it's close enough to, to reach out and touch. It's It's hovering. It's just waiting to land like a seagull over a hot chip. But Jesus does more than just declare that it's coming. He's making sure people are ready for it. And how does he do that? How does he get people ready? Well, he does it with the same message that John did. You get ready for the king. You get ready for the kingdom by repenting. Look at Jesus' words here in verse 15. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news, the gospel. To believe the good news is to trust the announcement. It's not fake news. Trust it. Recognise the time has come, the wait is over, the king has arrived. That's what it means to believe the good news. The message of Jesus, the message of John... Repent and believe the good news. Big things are just around the corner. The kingdom of God's nearly here. It's hovering. A time when the king will be crowned and the kingdom will begin. It's coming. 
And that's Mark's story that he'll tell over 16 chapters about how the kingdom comes and how the king is crowned. But we'll need to wait till the end to see that crowning, that coronation. It'll take to chapter 16 before we see the enthronement because it doesn't happen in a palace before thousands of adoring subjects. It doesn't happen on a battlefield before thousands of slain enemies. The final victorious coronation happens before a group of petrified women on a quiet Sunday morning. Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8, when King Jesus defeats the greatest enemy of all, death. And he's raised from the dead and witnessed by this handful of women to prove who he was, to show once and for all that the first verse of the story is right. Christ, the Son of God. He shows that John the Baptist was right. After me will come one more powerful than I who baptises you with the Holy Spirit. And it proves that God himself was right. You are my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. That coronation scene with that small handful of women, uh, their response that Easter morning was fear. Fear at the awesome power of the one who defeats death. Fear is a pretty appropriate response, really. And we are called to add to that repentance. Repentance is the appropriate response. Bowing the knee before the one who deserves it, rather than continuing as king of our own lives. That's how we respond to Jesus. We repent. But what about Jesus here is... How did they respond? Were they ready? Well, Mark tells us how some people responded. There were some, at least, who were ready. Verse 16 we read, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus says, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they leave their nets and follow him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he calls them, and they leave their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and follow him. The starting pistol has fired, and these guys are the first to leap out of the blocks. They're ready. They're ready to follow the king. They're ready to be part of the kingdom. They hear the call, the call to repent and believe and follow. And they're up for it. It's a call that rings loudly to you, to me. A call to be ready. Are you up for it? A call to repent. To repent from ignoring the kingship of Jesus. A call to believe. To recognise his right to rule. A call to follow. To go where? Jesus wants to do what he wants. If you're not sure about who Jesus is, exactly what he's asking you to do, then keep checking it out, keep reading for yourself. The book of Mark is a fantastic place to start. 
because as we read chapter after chapter, this strange kingship becomes clearer. And what it means to submit to his kingship becomes clearer as well. So, so keep reading. Get ahead of the story, if you like. We'll look at it slowly, but you can read it this afternoon. Uh, keep investigating if you're not sure. Many of us uh, are not in that situation. Many of us uh, have known Jesus for years, even for decades. Being ready for Jesus is a decision we need to be making too. We need to be making over and over. We need to be recognising Jesus' kingship as a conscious act at the start of every day. In every decision we make, we have the choice to follow King Jesus or not. We have the choice to repent or to continue to do our own thing. Every decision we have the, cho- the, the choice to believe, to trust uh, Jesus or, or to trust that we know best. Every day we choose to follow or to turn our backs and ignore him. What does this mean for us as a church, this challenge to repent? What can we be doing to be getting ready for royalty? Well, firstly, we need to make sure we continue to give people the opportunity to repent, that we keep telling them the good news about Jesus, here and outside of here. Secondly, this church needs to be a place where repenting is on the agenda. One of the ways we do that is prayer in our services include repentance. Many things in church over 2,000 years have changed uh, hugely. Uh, But one of the things that hasn't changed is that we begin church by approaching God. We recognise who he is and we recognise who we are in comparison. And if we do that uh, truthfully, we'll always uh, need to confess how sinful we are and we'll repent and we'll recognise again our need for Jesus and our pride will be broken again and we'll grow in our humility and gratitude as we repent. So let me encourage you, service leaders, let me encourage you who are rostered to pray up here at the front, continue to think about the things that you pray for. Prepare the things that you're asking forgiveness for on behalf of all of us. As you confess certain things up here on behalf of us, uh, it shows all of us things that we need to change and it shines a light onto blind spots in our own lives. It's one of the ways we make sure repenting stays on the agenda. Thirdly, church needs to be a place where individually people are changing, repenting, turning from what they once were, becoming more like Jesus. It's encouraging, isn't it, to see people changing, gradual, continual process of repenting and getting ready for Jesus. It's encouraging to see people growing kinder and gentler and more patient and more stable and more generous. We need to be a place where we can see each other We can ask each other, we can communicate to each other about how we are growing and becoming more like Jesus. Fourthly, I think it needs to be a place, if it's going to be a place where repentance is encouraged, it needs to be a place where it's okay to fail. 
where it's okay to fail, where we don't put these masks on about how we all have everything in control, where everybody's perfect. Uh, We need to grow in our transparency and our openness and our accountability to one another. Uh, That takes bravery, doesn't it? Uh, To pretend, uh, uh, to stop pretending that we have everything together. I don't have everything together. I struggle. I'm impatient. I'm not gentle. I make mistakes. I repent. We need to be a place where there's grace and forgiveness when repentance comes. We need to be a place where we support and are honest with each other rather than being judgmental. If repentance is going to be encouraged, then forgiveness needs to be freely given as well, doesn't it? That's a fifth thing. If we want to encourage repentance, we need to make sure that we forgive. Repentance is encouraged when we proclaim the gospel as people repent and become more like Jesus, as we're open and supportive and forgiving. That's the way we work hard. That's the way we get ready for royalty. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, make us a people like that. Make us a people who are ready for Jesus, who are following him, who are trusting him, who are repenting. Lord, we thank you that your offer of forgiveness and restoration is constant and generous and all-encompassing. Make us a people who follow our King Jesus by repenting and trusting and following. Amen.